hear it for Leibniz. Hooray! 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 So, so I'm going to, at some point, finish that up and publish it. Welcome to another episode of Such Dead Cast. I know it's been a while since the last episode, but I'm not going to start this one apologizing as I usually do. I'm quite simply forced to accept that I've got almost no spare time left anymore, so I'll just have to release episodes when I do manage to find the time. And, most importantly, stop beating myself up when I feel that it's been too long. This is unfortunate, since I really don't like podcasts that are rarely updated, but it's just the way it has to be for now. I hope I manage to make this a more formalized part of my job someday, and uh, I will still aim towards releasing an episode each month, but the exact release will depend on my level of stress at any given time. This is all the more reason to follow the SuchDeadCast Twitter or Facebook page, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or similar so that you don't have to check the website, but simply get a notification when there's a new episode. Okay, with that out of the way, today's episode is a special one. As I think I mentioned before, this podcast format is actually inspired by the likes of Mark Marin, Greg Proops, and Scott Ackerman, and they will sometimes do live panel versions of their podcasts. Now, this seems to work well for stand-up comedians interviewing stand-up comedians, but would it work for philosophers? Well... I decided to try it out, so I put together a panel for the International Association for Computing and Philosophy Conference in Thessaloniki, Greece. This meant that I had to choose participants who were otherwise present at the conference, but that wasn't really a problem, and I ended up inviting Selma Brinksjord, Gregory Chaitin, Maria Rosario Tadeo, and Milfred Sieg. It all went pretty well, but there were only two challenges. First of all, the guests have done most of the work in philosophy of mathematics and formal methods, and I'm not really an expert in either field. So when researching for this episode, I quickly realized that I had to read up a lot on those issues if I were to follow the conversation at all. So I basically spent every night in Thessaloniki panicking and reading up on these topics. So I did feel a little like fish out of water, since these people are all vastly more intelligent than I am. I should also add that literally one minute before the audience came into the room, I was sitting down to have a breather, and I missed my chair and fell down from the stage right on my ass. So I was actually in quite some pain through all of this as well. I should also mention that this was recorded in a somewhat noisy room with an air conditioner at full blast, which does of course affect the sound quality a little. At a couple of occasions there were also some comments from the audience, most notably from Mark Bishop from Goldsmiths University of London, who contributed with several interesting observations. Unfortunately the microphone didn't pick up the audience questions, so I had to edit them out, but I think the conversation will still make sense. Okay, let's get into it, and let's now turn to my experiment with a live panel of four philosophers vastly more intelligent than me, and me trying to keep up while my ass is hurting. Enjoy! So, Selmer, let me start with you. Uh, actually, first of all, Selmer Brinksjord, it's a very Norwegian name. Are you by Norwegian descent? I'm 100% Norwegian. Uh, I'm descended from uh, Leif Erikson, apparently. Oh, wow. And uh, have a partial claim on the throne of Norway that some 
uh, idiosyncratic relatives of mine have encouraged me to make, but I think that's that's very unwise. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, like I said, I want to try to get to some of the topics that perhaps you are not that well known for, at least perhaps in this audience. So a lot of people here know your work on computer-generated writing, that kind of stuff. But what might be less known to some of you, at least, is that you wrote a novel yourself very early on while doing your PhD, actually. A book called Soft Wars, which has become somewhat of a cult classic, even. Uh, And it's even been described as a rather accurate prediction of the coup against Gorbachev. And you've said yourself that you use logic to break down the structure of the thriller genre, and you basically wrote your book on top of that structure. So how on earth did you get that idea, especially at such an early age? Well, I can tell you, as soon as I got it and implemented it, I threw it away. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't that successful. Uh, I think uh, trying to write that mechanically is a recipe for literary disaster. Uh, but my interest in, in prediction and using uh, techniques in philosophy crossing over to computational logic to predict geopolitical events is uh, still very much alive in my life and uh, very interested specifically in the nuclear case there. But uh, uh, that, that, that's the common theme. That, that book was about a possible uh, nuclear self-deterrence case um, self-deterrence was really the core of the book, and uh, I tried to figure out a way to put a plot together so as to deliver that to the reader uh, with enough uh, spicy sex to make it, make it sensible. <laughs> so when history started unfolding and it seemed that you had predicted some of these events, uh, how did you feel about that? Uh, lucky. I think that the literary <laughs> merits of the book were utterly absent, but uh, the fact that it turned out to be somewhat, quote, predictive uh, allowed me to do some interesting venues and talks and TV shows and stuff like that. So it was a huge amount of fun and uh, yeah, great memories about that project. Right. Great. So you were clearly very ambitious and intelligent. Actually, that goes for all of you. You all seem to be a sort of childhood prodigy, a lot of you. Uh, were there somebody who sort of awakened that in you, or have you been a prodigy from day one? Uh, I think the other three <laughs> can lay claim to being prodigies. I cannot. Uh, my, my big aspiration was to be a professional athlete. Oh, wow. Uh, at least up until the time I encountered uh, essentially a philosophy teacher, uh, Mr. Ruyak, uh, in high school. He was a, my Spanish teacher for two years running. I studied a lot of Spanish for six years, actually, and... Uh, he introduced me to both philosophy and logic in the form of the liar's paradox as expressed by um, Cervantes and Don Quixote, which is arguably the first novel ever written and possibly uh, the first modern treatment uh, of the liar's paradox. And that's, that's, that's where it started. He said, you know, this is philosophy summer. Like, philosophy is fun. I mean, what do you do with that? And then he said, I can do better than answer that question or try to. I can have one of my former students who is sitting right where you're sitting come back. He got his PhD in philosophy. I'll have him come back to the high school and talk to you. And that's what he did. And uh, it was just, just remarkable. Um, so that's where my interest, I think, became at least uh, very concrete in terms of philosophy and logic. Right. But on that starting point, how did you turn towards logic? Well, he that, again, that was the liar paradox. Right. So I won't say that it was uh, 
a technical expression of the paradox. But that came pretty soon. We didn't have, of course, the web then. But uh, if you start asking people, you know, their antecedents to this temporally, uh, Mr. Yek was very helpful. And I ended up actually talking to a, I don't recall uh, what university, but it was in New York, talking to a, a philosophy professor that he put me into contact with. And uh, from there, it went deeper into the logic. And, yeah. But then I, then I was really just, and I don't want to, but then I was going to use the logic and the philosophy to be a lawyer. Oh, well. Right? Because I was chickening out in terms of <laughs> going for the philosophy and then decided as an undergraduate I, I, would, uh, I would just do it. And my mother was uh, scandalized. Uh, but then it took, you know, maybe the, the next day, she was like, if you want to do that, that's fine. And uh, that's, that's sort of how it evolved. Wow. Interesting. Thank you. Uh, we'll get back to more some of your more uh, often very controversial views uh, later on uh, and see if you can spark some debate. Um, but let me introduce the rest of the panel as well. Uh, so let's move to Gregory Chaitin. Remarkable career and started very early on. And I wanted to go a bit back in time, as I often do. Uh, so when I started researching your early days... Um, Uh-oh, what did, what did you uncover <laughs> that I've been trying to hide for years? <laughs> Well, in some ways, you didn't hide it because I was fascinated by a section in your book, Metamath, where you seem to be writing to your young self. Uh, I wanted to quote this at length because it was almost a moving section. You're talking about some of the grand mysteries of mathematics, and you say that, quote, some of this nobody understands very well. It's a task for the future. How about you? Maybe you can do some work in this area. Maybe you can push the darkness back a millimeter or two. Maybe you can come up with an important new idea. Maybe you can imagine a new kind of question to ask. Maybe you can transform the landscape by seeing it from a different point of view. That's all it takes, just one little new idea and lots and lots of hard work to develop it and to convince other people. Maybe you can put a scratch on the rock of eternity. Beautiful passage, and it seems like you're directly writing to the reader, of course, but also directly to your young self. I might be overinterpreting this, but it almost sounds like you're talking to the person who, at the age of 18, uh, having just come out of Bronx High School of Science, being an undergraduate student still, already then you wrote a paper in which you put forward the notion of Kolmogorov uh, of complexity. So you had basically written yourself into the history of mathematics at the age of 18, uh, did you have a sense of that yourself back then, that you were making history, that you were part of history? No, not at all. Uh, I just enjoyed uh, having piles of math books and science books around me, and I would uh, go through them like a sponge, trying to f filter out the main ideas. I guess the main ideas meant the, the philosophically deep ideas. Uh, and it was just a lot of fun. Uh, and um, one of the books... One of the many books I read at that time was E.T. Bell's Men of Mathematics, mm. um, which is a, ve a very personal book. Right. Uh, it, it has a, it's politically incorrect in every possible way now, <laughs> but I thought it was such a stimulating book. And one of the conclusions I got from that book is you either have a great idea by the time you're 18 or your life is over, <laughs> which is not true, of course. But... Um, but I guess a little bit something like that happened. Uh, right. So I, I was just having so much fun with these ideas. Uh, yeah. yeah. It seems like that started early on as well. I think I read somewhere that you started collecting Scientific American uh, early on. So when did you really start getting interested in this and, and why? I don't know. It looks like it was forever. A book that had a big impact on me was Gödel's Proof by Nagel and Newman. 
And I guess it, it, I probably saw it when it first came out in 1958. Uh, so I must have been about 11 or 12. Wow. <laughs> and I remember trying to explain it to other children, <laughs> not too successfully, <laughs> the basic ideas. And uh, that book made an enormous, uh, enormous impact on me. I had seen it earlier as an article in Scientific American, a few years earlier, maybe it was 56, with an astonishing photograph of Gendel right. that made him seem like a Martian. <laughs> uh, and uh, in a way, that, that became an obsession. But very quickly, I found the ideas of, uh, of Turing, which, which I thought went more deeply into the Gettel-Cletus phenomenon than Gettel himself. And I, meanwhile, I was reading every possible book, like Shannon and Weaver, Information Theory, Theory of Games, and by John von Neumann. I read a lot of von Neumann. So uh, it was a great period to be in New York. Uh, the U.S. was doing well at that time, and um, the public libraries were wonderful. Uh, one had access to all these incredible books if one lived in Manhattan. And uh, also, they were, they, they, they were competing with Russia at that time, mm. the Cold War, and the advantage of it, it was all Stalin's fault. The, <laughs> the U.S. had all these wonderful programs for, for, uh, for gifted uh, children to study science and mathematics. Right. I didn't realize that it was for you know, such complicated uh, reasons. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a great moment to be there, and I took all the possible uh, advanced courses and, and things like that. So it was a, a lot of fun, and I didn't really notice what was going on. I forgot that passage in Metamath. No, I'm, I'm, I wasn't writing to myself, but I did try to write a book that I would have enjoyed reading, because I think that if you want to really um, give young people a passion for mathematics and theoretical ideas, I think it, it has... To, I don't, I'm probably wrong, but I think it helps if it's at an, an early age before they get corrupted by a conventional education, mm -hmm. which probably has a deadly effect in most cases. So, uh, so I was trying to reach out uh, to people and encourage them uh, to attempt the impossible. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so those early days, you mentioned you tried to explain this unsuccessfully to, <laughs> to, to the other 11-year-old children. It seems like it must have been sort of a very really solitary endeavor to touch on these topics at such an early age, especially from before the internet. I mean. Well, it was it was somewhat uh, solitary uh, piles of books, especially in the summer. Uh, in New York, you used to be able to borrow books for the entire summer, mm. so I would get a, acquire an entire library for the summer. Um, but but I I like people, <laughs> I like people. So uh, it's true that I had a somewhat solitary. Existence, but um, it's not because I'm a solitary person. Right. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Okay, we're going to get back to your very controversial ideas in a second as well. Uh, but let me uh, introduce uh, the next in order of alphabet, uh, Wilfried Sieg. Now, a lot of you have many parallels, and when I look at your background, you also started out with natural sciences. You started out studying physics and mathematics, turns towards mathematics and logic in your master's, and then you're suddenly in Stanford doing your PhD uh, in philosophy uh, with no one less than Solomon Pfefferman as your supervisor. Uh, could you say a little bit about why you made that move towards philosophy? What inspired you to do that? Well, it is not a full move to philosophy, right? After all, my 
thesis supervisor was actually in mathematics with right. a courtesy appointment in philosophy. Uh, but, I mean, the step from doing mathematics and being interested in foundations of mathematics uh, then to broaden your horizon to more philosophical issues is a very natural one. Mm. So I started out doing mathematics, quite conventionally in Berlin, but I got interested in the foundations of mathematics and I shifted to the University of Münster, where the oldest German institute of logic and foundational mathematics is mm -hmm. located, and had a wonderful teacher who was actually the one who taught me the craft of logic, uh, Dieter Rölling. Okay. Uh, and then I got a fellowship to for one year from the German exchange organization, DRD, and I could go anywhere. So I thought, why not Stanford? I had written, I had read papers by Kreisel and Pfefferman, and so I applied to be there as a visiting fellow for a year, and applied as a, ma as a matter of fact to the mathematics department. Now, in my statement of purpose, I emphasized that I wanted to work with Kreisel. Okay. So Kreisel was in the philosophy department. So they simply shifted me from the mathematics department to the philosophy department. So that part of shifted being shifted into philosophy is almost accidental. Right. Uh, but I mean, I didn't have any objection, quite the contrary. I enjoyed being there. And at the end, or towards the end of the year, I applied to the PhD program and was accepted. And, you know. and one year, that is my second year at Stanford, I devoted to what people consider to be real philosophy. <laughs> so, uh, at the time, Gödel was thought to be very interested in phenomenology. So, I think I should learn and study phenomenology. Darkfin Forrestal gave a course in phenomenology. Ah, yeah. I took it and essentially devoted one year of my academic existence at Stanford to studying phenomenology, Husserl, and what uh, uh, Dr. Follister thought as the appropriate background for phenomenology. Mm -hmm. Bozzano, Brentano, Frege, interesting stuff. Right. But uh, after that year, I thought to do more concrete work in logic was the appropriate thing to do. Right. So, do you think the phenomenology has influenced your later work, or did you leave it behind? No. no? <laughs> 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 so, Kreiser and Pfefferman are, of course, giants in the field. Um, what was your experience meeting them for the first time coming to Stanford? Well, the first year I, I spent mostly with Kreiser, mm. uh, who can be, if he wants to be, a very, very charming, supportive man. But he can be also well, uh, not so supportive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got to know Saul Fathman in my second year. I took a course on proof theory with him. Uh, and it was wonderful. He's a very gentle, supportive man. Uh, and I got interested in a particular topic in proof theory and that was it. Mm. And after this first year when I started to work with him, uh, I met with him every week. Uh, and in addition, we played tennis once a week. So oh, that was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> great. 
Okay, uh, we'll get back to the more concrete philosophical questions with you as well. Uh, but let's move on to the last uh, part of the panel, uh, Maria Rosario Tadeo. As most of you in this audience know, uh, Rosario is the president of the International Association of Computing and Philosophy. And I'm also a member of the executive board, uh, and we have regular meetings, uh, Skype meetings typically, and uh, I'm rather impressed with the way you run these meetings. I don't think there's a single meeting without you referring to yourself as a fascist dictator. No, uh, that's communist dictator. <laughs> <laughs> or contemplating various ways of using sort of more or less mafioso methods to mm -hmm. getting things done. Um, it's all tongue-in-cheek, of course, but you do have a remarkably strong sort of leadership style, uh, which kind of leads me to expect that you had to develop this personality at some point. Uh, what sort of led you to become this very, very um, remarkably strong woman? Actually, I'm getting mellower by the years. Uh, uh, I was born this way. Oh. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you ever meet my mom or my sisters, they have super dreadful stories about me being a child and leading a bunch of children walking for like three kilometers to get some places <laughs> I wanted to be in a super dangerous surrounding, you know, this kind of thing, picking up fights with other people. Uh, it's nature, I guess. But I don't think I am like, I, I, most of the times I point out, even to my students, I always tell them, you know, that the class is not a democracy, it's an enlightened tyranny. And, but I also think sometimes you, it's in, so a leader takes responsibility. And the responsibilities are the other side of the coin of a vision. And right. there's no sense in getting the responsibilities if there is no vision you want to push for. Mm -hmm. And I take the, I mean, the consequences. If my vision is not good enough, I'm here to pay for my bill. But it's going to be my vision that's going to yep. uh, be addressed. <laughs> Another thing that I'm curious about with you is that uh, I've spoken to many Italian expats before. Uh, and actually, the first episode of this podcast was with Luciano Floridi. Uh, and almost every Italian expat I've spoken to, they left Italy for very concrete reasons, and many of them being fed up with Italian uh, academia. And going, so going back to your early days, you, you graduated in philosophy, your master's at the University of Bari, uh, with a thesis on a simple grounding problem, which is always interesting because... To understand it, Bari is very continental leaning, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you move on to your PhD, uh, and as far as I can see, at least, you started working much more closely with Floridi. You started working much more in Oxford. Then, um, did you have a similar negative experience from Italian academia? Well, it, it was negative in several respects. It was also, I mean, there are some things that I actually value: the sense of you know doing things uh, without being pampered. My students are customers and not students anymore. And I didn't have that experience. And I think that that allowed me to develop some more sense of going to the university as an adult more than, than like a high school student uh, who does more in-depth uh, studying. So that part I actually value a lot. Uh, running away was a run away from the Italian academia for many reasons. One of the most important was that when you do philosophy in Italy, you do history philosophy. No. You don't do research in anything else but uh, what some guy said about some other guy and the less known these two guys are, the cooler you are. Mm -hmm. And no one's asking themselves the question, if these two people have not been known for 300 years, there might be a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was like uh, the, the one of the first things. Yeah, I, always, I, I got into... So I never liked continental philosophy. I was stuck with it uh, at the university. I, I went to... I wanted to do philosophy since I was like, I don't know, 10 years old. And then at some point, without really realizing what was it, and then at some point I met some guy who introduced me to logic. Mm. And that's what I wanted to do. Right. And, uh, so that was the starting point. Right. And you eventually started moving more and more towards, and spending more and more time in Oxford. Um, 
And again, Oxford has kind of a reputation for being a potentially hostile environment, especially for newcomers. Uh, what was your experience from coming to Oxford? Oxford is a weird place, especially if you get there from the south of Italy. It's a night, so the first three years everything was super good and super great and I couldn't see any possible uh, you know, inconsistency or things that I was able to criticize. But then uh, when kind of the, the, the first emotion goes away, which I mean, like, uh, it took me three years, you realize that it's a very uh, rigidly structured place, uh, mainstreams, uh, mainstream theories or approaches and political, uh, political aspects of academia are very, very important. Perhaps sometimes, not more than the research that you do, because the people who are there, they're very good, so they do good research. But it's very, very well categorized and structured. So the more I live there, the more I am, you know, I don't work at the University of Oxford, my appointment is at the University of Warwick, but the more I, I hang out uh, with people in Oxford that I deal with them, I realize that sometimes this whole rigidity of academia prevents them to see good, interesting stuff uh, emerging on the fringe. Uh, and that's not always something I appreciate, at least not anymore. Mm -hmm. And I went through it, perhaps myself, because when I started working more in the computer ethics and I started to work on ethics of cybersecurity and this kind of thing, I, I had been looked at like the crazy person who does something which is not philosophy. Yeah. Then, likely enough, there is this thing called REF, which is a national assessment of the university. And for the REF, you need to have a societal impact. So applied ethics and computer ethics turn out to be not such a bad thing. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, interesting. Okay, thank you all. Uh, Okay, so there are a few common denominators, um, and there's an interesting spectrum in several ways between you. Um, now, first of all, you're all uh, very much grounded in logic, uh, and clearly see logic and formal methods as a very important part of philosophy. Some of you may be a bit more than others, <laughs> and I'm referring to uh, what Selmer brought up the other day after a talk. Um, you raised some rather controversial claims uh, about roughly what it takes to be a science, and you, I'm sure again, a bit tongue-in-cheek, you threw some sort of generally respected sciences under the bus, uh, including psychology and also even biology, perhaps. Uh, and it sounds to me, at least, that your demarcation criterion uh, seems to be whether a science is grounded in formal methods or not, and that uh, so-called sciences who are not are not real sciences. Uh, is that an overstatement? No. <laughs> <laughs> So what about sciences like psychology and biology? Well, I think you just begged the question, but I'm going to let you uh, get away with that since you're the gracious host. But uh, I recognize this as obnoxious uh, in the minds of, of, of many people, but um, it's really a function of a desire to see theorems drive a body of knowledge. And I know no other way, if that's not, not only a viable but a desirable kind of output. I don't know any other way to get that other than to rely upon some formal structures and formal methods. Of course, one can deny that, but um, I'm ready to defend it, and no, uh, I, I meant what I said, and uh, you know, after a certain point, you get, you get old enough, I think, you get uh, to the point where you wonder whether you really need to not only philosophically temper what you say, but do you, do you need to change the semantics of what you're saying? Mm. Um, and I, I'm just, uh, just not prepared to do that when it comes to standards, standards for, for science. Now, the irony is that some, some uh, 
quote, formal sciences, quite in the business of producing theorems, aren't necessarily the most effective sciences we have. And the paradigmatic case there would probably be the economics, uh, certainly microeconomics. But um, that's a longer discussion, and I would still, despite that apparent counterexample, uh, stand by my standards. So what is the implication then for, let's take perhaps psychology as an example. Uh, should psychology sort of increasingly turn towards formal methods, or should we abandon psychology? Uh, it should. I'm less knowledgeable about psychology overall than I am when it comes to uh, cognitive science. But uh, it seems odd that the psychology of reasoning and decision-making, if we just look at that subfield, even there, there isn't a deep formal understanding of what is being talked about. And if that's not the prime candidate for a place where you could do it, I don't know what is. So clearly there's a deep cultural uh, and emotional aversion to doing this kind of thing. I mean, we, sh we should be able to say, here are the seven major contending theories in the psychology of reasoning and decision-making. Decision and here are, in each case, the body of the formal results that they have, and then start to do some kind of contrasting and comparing. And you can only do little splinters of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, but still there are, and, and you've said this as well, that there are certain things that seem to be beyond the reach of, of formal methods. Uh, I, I like some of your responses in the media as well. I've seen <coughs> you've been asked questions like, so is this computer-generated writing really creative? And your immediate response is always, no, it's not. Um, so if those kinds of things are beyond the reach of formal methods, what are their status? Right. Well, thanks for that question, because be, being rather demanding about what counts as a science does not entail that there isn't plenty of room for things that aren't science in any sense, and I certainly believe that's, believe that's true. I'm not looking for theorems when I'm uh, reading Shakespeare, mm -hmm. uh, nor when I'm looking at, uh, at, at Caravaggio in, in, in Rome and... Uh, and trying to figure out what's going on, uh, what's going on there. So none of that, I think, or much of that, cannot be formalized. Period, and uh, that's okay with me. But by golly, when you're claiming to do science, and it can be formalized, you know, maybe, maybe that should be systematically attempted. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Gregory, you've also tried to formalize, um, to bring a lot of formal methods to biology, also to aspects like, concepts like creativity and so on. Uh, do you see a limit to formal methods? Yeah. The whole notion of creativity, very vague, mushy notion, is sort of the complement of formal methods. Uh, creativity is what we don't know how to do systematically. Mm. And um, I guess my early reaction to Gödel's incompleteness was, was fashion, fascination, but it seemed clear that this was viewed as a, a, a severe blow by some people, right? At that time, Hermann Weyl, John von Neumann, etc., commenting on this. So the, the one person who immediately said creativity, I think, was Post. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was fascinated by the question of, can there be a mathematical theory of biology? Yeah. It, you know, why is, how different is biology from other sciences? And that was, it, it, that question has, has, has uh, fascinated me for many, 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 many years. And I think, finally, uh, I don't know, it looked like I had an idea that might, that might, uh, might be relevant. And so, uh, 
Um, and certainly not before the age of 18, right? This is right. something that I did very recently yeah. in Brazil. So I feel sympathetic to the statement that, it, that math, making something mathematics, mathematical is important, but I also feel sympathetic to the, it's not a mystical view that Gödel and Turing point out, most mathematical functions are uncomputable with probability one. Most real numbers are uncomputability with probability one. Mm. So I think it's, what's important here is that mathematics is looking at its own limitations of certain methods. For example, Turing's idea of the oracle, that one page remark in that I, a paper of his that I don't appreciate very much, <laughs> that it's a first step in, in trying to discuss intuition, creativity, things that are uncomputable in a, in a, in a mathematical way, in a, being able to prove things. Yeah. So I guess I've always been interested in the edge. Right. You know, between those two. I've, I've been fascinated by the tension between these two, these two things. Precisely, precisely. Thanks. Wilfred, uh, you seem to have stayed more squarely within uh, foundations of mathematics and so on. Um, have you tried sort of pushing towards that limit as well? Well, let me first make a remark Epic. about Gregory uh, and the Turing paper. Uh, it was his dissertation on the church uh, on ordinal objects, I suppose. And it's a remarkable attempt of going beyond formal methods by introducing uh, progressions of theories, uh, ordinal objects. So to, to add to a theory the Gödel sentence and iterate this. Well, I know that Stefan admires that paper enormously and yes. spent years developing the idea. Uh, it's just that from my particular background, that paper didn't resonate with me. Okay, all right. I think it's very interesting. Mm. But be that as it may, in some sense, I've been trying to do this in a systematic way. Yeah. That is, if you do logic, you can try to do things in an automated way. And I have been developing and implementing a particular method of searching for proofs in logic, in first-order logic, uh, for natural deduction systems that are particularly suitable for formalizing informal argumentation. Mm -hmm. And I have been trying to push this beyond logic, and there are two directions in which I try to do this. One is to prove in an abstract setting the incompleteness thereof. And if you take some of the basic features of Gödel's arguments, so-called representability and derivability conditions that were introduced later in Bern as axiomatic, as, ax as axioms, then my program can actually prove those theorems. And there is one crucial addition that is added to the logical underpinnings, namely the crucial move that you make in the, in the proofs of the incompleteness theorems between arguments in the better language and arguments in the Mm -hmm. And the program does do exactly this. It, it, allow, it is allowed to make moves from the meta-language into the object language and vice versa. Ah, and if you add this particular feature, plus a little bit of logical extensions, to the purely logical proof search engine, then the incomplete systems can be proved automatically. Interesting. So, and that's what I'm trying to, to do currently for a little bit of set theory. Yeah, yeah. So to add heuristics that are subject-specific to the purely logical mechanism. Right. Uh, Rosario, you 
may perhaps have left the logic behind as such, but a lot of your work has been grounded in, in philosophy of information and information theory. Uh, and you sort of get that same question there sometimes, like what are the limits of philosophy of information? Um, what are your views on that? Yesterday, I think someone said, well, this theory has a problem because it actually can explain everything or too many things. And there is a risk that you can run when you, when you focus on information because it's such a kind of minimalist concept. So it's, uh, and you can rephrase or rephrase everything yeah. in terms of information. And the limit there is that you, you I, or whoever, risk to, to run into trivialities. And the other serious risk is that Information is a concept which is very easy to trivialize and banalize or misunderstand and make it, everything counts as information and you, and you lose focus on the definition of information or what information is on, and also the scholarly debate about the truthful information and what it's made of. And so the risk of philosophy of information, especially as the ICT and the information revolution become more, and more popular and you know, it's uh, basically everywhere, is that it, it might become like the, you throw the philosophy of information as an expression in any kind of debate without clarifying what the, the grounds are, uh, and you wish to, to lose all the analytical insights inside we have about this concept, which is what makes it interesting. It's a powerful concept, but it's not nonetheless a trivial concept. So I think that's one of the limits and the risks, more than limits, perhaps, of right. the philosophy of information as a field. You were, you were entirely correct from a scholarly point of view as far as I can see that uh, Rosaria did a remarkable work on the symbol grounding problem and I've I've uh, recently been very much I don't know whether she knows that but grappling with uh, the proposed solutions there and have a paper coming out fairly soon on that I do think that is about the not about I mean that that is the the, the best proposal I have seen based on admitting there's a serious problem Right. which in AI is often denied, and Luciano joined uh, her in that. But uh, that, that's a commonality there. I think uh, uh, Gregory, Wilfred, and, 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 and I, I think the, the link in the area of incompleteness, specifically if you want to use the adjective Gedelian incompleteness, is very strong, really quite, quite remarkable. Um, I have an Ichikai paper with uh, people in my lab about trying to use analogical techniques to uh, get to the, the first and second uh, incompleteness uh, the theorem. Yeah, I look forward to reading about Gregory's work, but uh, someone here in the physical audience, Paul Bella, will know, I think, that I've been working, uh, I've been working with a, a close colleague on that for five years, and we haven't, we haven't published uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but we have done all the work in formalizing physics, really to lay the groundwork uh, for what automated techniques could do in biology. And the early results that we have in physics, again, are just to pave the way for uh, biology. So I, I look forward to learning more, and that's a connection. Now, creativity, uh, that, that, that probably also is uh, an, an amazing thing. I, I, just, uh, I woke up this morning uh, to see there was an email from a reporter saying, I want to do a story about your Lovelace test, because this crazy Turing test thing with Kevin Works out there saying the AI is all solved now. I came across this paper, the Lovelace test, and that was... That was with Paul Bellow, who's in the physical audience here, and Dave Fritchie. I was like, what is that? Oh, yeah. Oh, right. That was the idea, and I think it may have been Paul's. That was the idea that, look, if you know what the machine is going to do when you set the program loose, it's not doing anything for you. I mean, if you basically know what it's going to do and what its range of possibilities are, it's not doing anything creative. There hasn't been anything creative in AI so far. 
Um, I just I just wanted. I mean, there there are some interesting, uh, uh, you know, connections. Right. So sometimes the claim is made that you know to get creativity you need neural networks, but is that a solution at all? I don't think neural networks are enough. I don't think the compute and memory capacity of the neural network can explain von Neumann, Euler, Bach. You can name your favorite uh, mm. super creative people. So uh, there is a much greater uh, possibility if you go down to the molecular biology level. Right. Where each cell is doing a tremendous amount of computation and has an immense storage capacity. And so I have this wild idea based on knowing zero about the brain that uh, maybe a good way to build a brain, not necessarily like our brain, but that might have similar power, would be to use the neurons just as a front end, input output. But the back end would be at the molecular biology level. That would be the long term memory. That would, that would be where all the heavy creativity takes place. Exactly. Yeah. Sounds somewhat similar to Penrose, but even without the quantum stuff. <laughs> without the quantum stuff, definitely. <laughs> in, in mainstream AI, creativity is basically banished as a topic. Mm. This is empirically verifiable instantly by looking, for example, I'm talking about sort of the orthodox textbooks. If you pick up, if you pick up the, the, the AMA encyclopedic textbook, there's basically nothing about creativity, and that this is this is very this is very bad. And I hope this this changes because there are people doing work in creativity, and it's extremely interesting. Uh, but students aren't getting it in Intro to AI, and uh, I think Peter Norby is an absolutely brilliant person, obviously. But I remember him telling me one time, "Look, <clears throat> you think it's really special, and you think it's important. Uh, write down right here." Right down, right here, using the established formalisms of AI, the definition of creativity for an agent. Mm. And uh, until you can do that in his book, it won't. It won't be uh, metaphorically speaking. His book. It won't. It won't be in uh, his book. Well, on the subject of creativity, um, when I, I I started working on a little toy model of, of evolution, uh, and the the basic idea was that my organisms would be mathematicians, and I would turn Gettle incompleteness into a theorem of unending, open-ending evolution. And, um, and it was only later that people have pointed out to me, for example, my wife Virginia has pointed out to me, that this is a, a rather non-Darwinian conception, even though I'm talking about evolution with random mutations and uh, natural selection, that, uh, for example, uh, the selfish gene is one popular interpretation of Darwinism. Another popular interpretation is that you adapt perfectly to the environment and then you stop because you're maximally fit. And um, this little toy model uh, really emphasizes creativity. And I think that's something that has sort of gotten lost in the f discussions in biology. Well, there is a name for it. I guess speciation is one technical term for this. Where do new species come from? Yeah. And that... Uh, the conventional view is that it only happens when your geology changes. For example, when something splits into two land masses and then each side goes off in some direction uh, because of new, new conditions. But uh, there is, interestingly enough, in biology something wonderful called the Red Queen uh, hypothesis of Lee Van Balen. And it's, it says that you have to be creative all the time because your predators are trying new mutations, your parasites are trying new mutations, the bacteria that can kill you are trying new mutations. So you have to also keep constantly evolving just to keep up mm. in your ecosystem. 
So, so I think that's a remarkable view, and it really, uh, it, it, uh, it really puts creativity very firmly into the heart of biology. Right. But still, Mother Nature is blind, though, so could you call that creativity, generally? Well, the fact that it's blind uh, makes it unpredictable, makes it more interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that it's based on randomness. Yep. So are we setting the standards too high for creativity, perhaps? I'm interested in super extreme cases of creativity, like Ramanujan or Euler. All right. Now, it's true that even it would be wonderful just to understand ordinary daily creativity. For example, when someone goes into a kitchen and improvises based on what they find in the refrigerator, mm -hmm. and I think that's wonderful stuff. But, but the cases that really obsess me are, for example, Euler, who would publish a beautiful paper every week on a different <laughs> subject. I mean, it, the way this, the, these ideas just poured out of his mind. And as a young student, uh, I, I would be looking at, at Euler's collected works. And as you read his paper, he's the opposite of Gauss. As you read Euler's paper, he gives you his entire train of thought. It looks like he's doing the research as he's writing the paper. <laughs> and it, you get the impression you too could have, yeah. could have done it. And of course, you, ca you can't. <laughs> but, but, so I think understanding that kind of mathematical creativity, in, your, in musical creativity, you might have Bach, Mozart, whoever your favorite uh, composer is. But I, I think that Ramanujan and Euler are, are really a challenge, maybe even Cantor <coughs> in, for different reasons are really a challenge uh, to understanding these kind of extreme forms of creativity. Yep. I have the same interest in the extreme case. But in the extreme case, my suspicion is it's something like creation ex nihilo and uh, involves infinitary reasoning. And there's no, there's nothing uh, on the landscape right now uh, at the agent level, at the individual agent level, that uses infinitary techniques in any bonafide uh, sense. And if creation ex nihilo is possible, that, that of course, is a severe problem for, uh, for a function, whether, you know, whether it's computable or not, just a function from the natural numbers to the natural numbers, uh, that, that there's no creation ex nihilo there. That's not quite definition. Mm -hmm. I'm interested also in the extreme cases, but I actually would like to understand the more pedestrian cases first. What it is that allows us in strategic or heuristic terms to complete mathematical arguments. Yep. And then the second question would be, of course, what is it that allows us to introduce and what kind of experience is in the background to introduce new notions into mathematics? Yep. I mean, that's obviously crucial. Right. Interesting, because that's also a common view, and, and again, to bring Penrose back into it, that you somehow need creativity to actually arrive at certain mathematical theorems. Yeah. Uh, is that a view you share? Well, it's not just theorems, as Steve just pointed out. Uh, new, new concepts, new notions yeah. uh, require a higher order of creativity, I would say. Right. Creating a new field of mathematics. Once the field is created, uh, it may be, shall we say, relative, uh, working in it can be something perhaps that any professional mathematician yeah. can do. But the, the cases that I find most fascinating is, is, is really new ideas. And, for example, Turing is a is a tremendous case there. I suppose in mathematics I would point to Dedekind and mm -hmm. the starting of real modern mathematics using abstract concepts like groups, rings, fields, uh, in a very systematic and penetrating way. Mm -hmm. In algebraic number theory. That's right. fantastic. 
That's actually something else you have all have in common. You all have the same heroes, many of you. Uh, Leibniz, Hilbert, Gödel, all of this. Oh, is Leibniz a common hero? I have seen him. <laughs> Let's hear it for Leibniz. Hooray! 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 Leibniz, as a mathematician, was very creative, but he didn't have a natural mathematical talent like Euler. Euler just flowed, math- mathematics poured out of his head. Right. Leibniz analyzed mathematics, looked at it at the outside, analyzed what kind of methods could lead to new mathematics, and then made himself into a mathematician by this very deep analysis of mathematical creativity and, and methods for creativity. Yeah. So in his case, it was sort of faked. That's a little harsh, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting short. Um, well, actually, yeah, on that topic, uh, another, perhaps a common denominator, at least it sort of runs through three of you, um, and it's, of course, this controversial notion that perhaps uh, Gregory is um, best known for, of course, which has to do with this notion of digital physics and digital ontology, uh, which is difficult to summarize in any kind of a controversial way, I think, but roughly as a rough blunt guide for, for the audience who don't know about it. Uh, basically, it's the thesis that the universe is ultimately discrete, and if you want to be very blunt about it, that it's ultimately some kind of discrete computer. Uh, I haven't seen you work that much on that recently. Is that something you're still um, working on? Or still holding? Um, I think I'm sort of still holding it. Uh, but it's not just... Uh, <laughs> if you look at work on quantum gravity, there are theorems about the thermodynamics of black holes, and I think it's now called the holographic principle. And it says that any physical system only has a finite number of bits of information content, which grows as the surface area, not as the volume. That's why it's called the holographic principle. Mm-hmm. Now, quantum gravity is a very phenomenological field. There is no theory of quantum gravity. It's quite a challenge still. But some very good work that's been done is, uh, is fascinating, is very suggestive. So, so there are some physicists who, who are heading, tending in, the, in this kind of direction uh, for, their own, for their own reasons. So I, uh, I don't know that, um, I think I was just sort of perceiving, um, perceiving a movement that many people are involved in, perhaps without being conscious of this fact. I think uh, Stephen Wolfram certainly is very conscious of this, Edward Fredkin, for example. Yep. But uh, we, I think we just, some of us just wanted to put into writing what we perceived as something that was going on with many, many, many participants, you know, each in their own, in their own way. Right, exactly. Uh, and Selma, you wrote a paper called, where you basically have an argument for P equals NP, uh, in which you say, uh, and I quote, whether or not the actual world is fundamentally governed by digital physics, there can be no denying that there's a possible world that is. And this weak fact in itself is all that our proof presupposes. Our argument shows that if P does not equal NP, digital physics is incoherent. Uh, so, um, a bit curious how strong that claim really is. Uh, well, the the argument is not only conditional on some naive notion of of digital physics, but also on uh, the Barkin formula, uh, which 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 when it comes out will will be clear, uh, which I personally accept. So the the, the whole thing is uh, highly conditional and in no way uh, is a standalone argument. Personally, I don't I don't think digital physics is true. So the argument is based on two antecedents that are that are pretty pretty big. I don't know which one's more controversial. Many many people have known something about modal logic. Don't even 
I mean, they don't even think twice about whether the Barkin formula is, is true. I think Ed, you know, Ed, Ed, Ed Zalta thinks it's true. I, I think he still does. Uh, I, I, I do. So uh, it's highly, it's highly you know, con conditional. It's not a proof in any uh, ordinary sense at all. It's just a, a technical, formal uh, philosophy and an argument. Um, but, you know, uh, maybe if those two things are true, it could work. And, and you're right. The first premise is just that this, this uh, Wolframian conception is perfectly coherent top to bottom. And that's all, that's all we would uh, need. All right. Uh, Rosario, you have so you've done a lot of work within philosophy of information, information ethics, and one of the pillars there, which I'm not sure if you subscribe to at all, but one associated notion at least is this notion of informational structural realism, uh, which in some ways goes against digital physics, and at least Floridi has very explicitly gone against it. Uh, is that a view you share, or it's a view I came to appreciate in, after many years? For many years, I was I bought into the digital ontology, and I thought that was the, the way of doing it. Uh, and and then as I, it usually happens to me that when I teach some stuff, I really understand what I, I am dealing with it. And uh, as I taught philosophy of information for three years in a row, I, the, I appreciated more and more structural realism and, uh, and got close to it. I have a big, uh, I have to say, I'm very skeptical about all this kind of metaphysical claims that... Uh, which leave me puzzled all the time. I appreciate it for the sake of the argument themselves, but I don't see in them something which really appassionates me, because I always think that, very naively perhaps, that science will progress eventually, and whatever we can speculate about now in 100, 200, 1,000 years will be clear. So sometimes... You don't make any met metaphysical claims yourself? I might. I, I thought I've heard a few of those. So I thought could be, maybe there. No, no, maybe I might, there, when you're when you're eating. No, uh, but we all drinking, do. That's uh, what we all. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we all do. I'm at the oh, Okay. But I I got frustrated, and it might be like a, a naive approach. I realize perhaps it, it is. It really is to see great minds, great efforts, uh, put to uh, focus mainly or solely on issues. Uh, which are beautiful in themselves and come up with theories which are beautiful, beautiful in themselves. Whereas there is a lot of philosophical work that can be done and might perhaps clarify other issues which are more cogent. So there is a kind of methodological question that I have there. And, uh, can I, I mention Einstein on this connection? Uh, I hope I didn't interrupt you. No, that's fine. Oh, okay. Uh, Einstein has an essay where he says that uh, every good theoretical physicist is a reformed metaphysician. Why is he a metaphysician? Because to do good theoretical physics, you have to somehow believe that pure thought can tell you something about the, how the world works. Of course, he's a reformed metaphysician because then afterwards you really have to check, right? But he, but he does make a case for this leap of imagination uh, and pure thought to, to propose new possible theories. Many of them may die, but so, so I guess he is, he is encouraging us to be bold rather than to be cautious. Now, boldness is fine, and I guess it's... I mean, now you can contradict Einstein. It's a, you, you put me, like, in a very unbalanced debate. But, I mean, boldness is fine. It's when boldness becomes a structured castle, when you lock yourself in, and you refuse to, 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 to understand that it's boldness you, you're dealing with, and it's imagination, and, you know, the whole thing is about the rigorous uh, argument you put in there. And 
you might be right or wrong. And it's a good thing, we should do it, but it shouldn't be like this, the main or the sole thing people doing philosophy. That's Because perhaps I have a more sense of philosophy or something that really is applied uh, to theoretical issues, not practical issues, but not to that extent, not all the time. But Einstein was definitely right. <laughs> well, it worked for him at that moment in the history of physics. Uh, actually, could you please not talk in the back because it's really being picked up on the microphone. I'm sorry to be fascist, but... Uh... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just saw this uh, actually in the lighter report the other day and it's an extract from uh, Tim Crane interviewing John Searle and uh, Searle in his usual form uh, says that uh, <laughs> he thinks the shape of philosophy is philosophy is in terrible shape uh, and he talks about philosophy of language and the way Searle puts it is that uh, what has happened in the subject I started out with, the philosophy of language is that roughly speaking formal modeling has replaced insight uh, any account of the philosophy of language ought to stick as closely as possible to the psychology of actual human speakers and hearers, and that doesn't happen now. What are your views on Searle's? On Searle's well, I, I, you know, this is not going to come as a surprise to you, but uh, if you look at this from a scholarly point of view only, since pragmatic parsing, full-bore pragmatic parsing, is a fast ticket to not get a job, at least at an American university, and to never get tenure, he is empirically correct. Right. To do statistical parsing where accuracy is measured against a bank that's at pen, okay, <laughs> where semantic parsing is already conceded to be pretty much impossible is where we're at. There's no there, there he's he's right. What? About that part if you interpret his statement uh, to be about uh, you know natural language processing pragmatic parsing, which factors in the... Con look, what you're saying is taking... My understanding of what you're saying is taking account of perhaps my naive conception of the mindset of people in the audience. That's that's pragmatic parsing. Yeah. That does not... That's not what Watson does. Yeah. It's not what the Stanford person does. It's not what the IBM person does. Or they, they, it's not... Yeah. So he, he's right. Right. So I... I well, you don't have to because the... Because the... the the goal they have to they have to reach is pretty humble, <laughs> but yes. Well, I'm not addressing uh, issues of parsing or whatever, but rather the introductory part of Searle's remark, namely that philosophy is in bad shape. Mm. Yeah, I don't know about the state of philosophy in Berkeley, but I know it in Pittsburgh is in very good shape. <laughs> but it's just the combination of of deeply informed, scientifically informed work with philosophical reflection that makes matters work. Right. Well, Lee Smallen has a, a fun book called The Trouble with Physics, which I'm sure made him many, many enemies. <laughs> uh, those are the most fun books that do that. <laughs> and um, and he, he, he was talking about the physicists he admired as a student, and Schrodinger and Einstein and Hermann Weyl, uh, great names in theoretical physics. Um, and he points out that all these, all these people emerged from uh, a European culture where, where uh, science and philosophy were not separated, not at all separated. And, and then he said, uh, he, in his view, the problem with physics now is it's the shut up and calculate attitude to physics. And he thinks that that idea worked for a while, but has run out of steam. And so I, I think he's making a case that uh, we need more, not less philosophy. Right. 
No, I mean, it's quite remarkable. The scientific philosophy of the 19th century, uh, I mean, those are in Helmholtz and, and, and others. I mean, you can run a long, long list uh, of, of people involved in scientific philosophy at that age, at that time. Uh, it's remarkable how modern this approach to philosophical and scientific issues is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure that Searle would... Uh would gainsay those virtues and those trends. I don't know. But speaking of someone in AI, I can I can say that uh, in AI there are people if they if they have a drink or two and they relax a little bit, okay, they will ha they will express a deep fear that no matter how sophisticated is that artifact they created, there is zero understanding in the artifact. They'll take a paycheck, they'll take the grant, and they'll build the next one. But um, I think Searle and that argument, now maybe it was anticipated, and there's, there's debate in philosophy, but the crystal clear thought experiment and the anticipation of the objections based on the first one, yeah. uh, and it is, it, it is remarkable, and it's remarkably powerful. To the point where people say, I don't want to talk, it died from discussion because it's just, uh-oh, let's stop. Yeah. Let's just build, and John Pollock expressed, you know, let's just build the stuff, make it look really smart, and then hopefully this whole debate will be passe, but never coming to grips with the philosophical argumentation. <laughs> so you're talking about nightmares about Chinese rooms and, and basketball games. Uh, it's a tough problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does Watson really understand what it's doing when it brings back the answer to a Jeopardy question? Mm. Obviously not. Yeah. Is it great engineering? Sure. Does Dave Frucci think it doesn't pass? You know the, the no. He'll tell you. Right? Have, a, have a drink or two and ask him. Does it really manipulate symbols? Yes. Uh, we're running towards the end of time here, uh, so I just want to conclude with one final round. Uh, which actually you brought up. You talked about the Leave and Valens uh, Red Queen hypothesis the other day as well. And when you mentioned it the other day, you also mentioned in passing afterwards that. It exemplified the fact that the best ideas are the ideas you can't publish, um, because he had troubles publishing them. Uh, so that's actually my last question for all of you. Uh, do you have great ideas that you haven't published yet, or perhaps even have hard problem, problems publishing at all? Uh, let's start with Gregory. Well, I, I, I'm always exaggerating to be provocative. Yeah. But um, Sidney Brenner, who's a wonderful biologist, was recently making very strong remark along these lines published in some magazine in the UK, I don't remember which, maybe it was online, and um, um, he, I think he was decrying the grant system, the referee system, saying that all his friends who have Nobel Prizes in biology would not be able to have a career now. Yeah. And I think that's very worrisome that we've created a very rigid bureaucratic structure uh, where you have to work on what's fashionable and what's funded or it's suicide. Yeah. And uh, that is not a good survival strategy for the human race, that kind of rigidity. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have topics yourself that you have yet to publish on? No, I... In the pipeline? So no, I'm, I'm not complaining. I've been ex I think I've been more, rather more fortunate than I had any right to expect rather than less. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but still, there is this uh, sort of theorem that says a committee is always stupider than the the individual mem members, yeah. so, so 
I'm I'm a little worried about I'm I'm, I'm you know I'm not going to go to the romantic view and say we should all be anarchists and everything, but I am a little bit worried about these mega structures that we're creating to control you United States research and funding now to control European research and funding from Brussels, yeah. and I'm worried that these bureaucrats who are not scientists, you know they're not creative people they are bureaucrats. Let's be honest about that. They may have political power and 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 all of that. That they are controlling what all of us are, are trying to do, and I think that's that's insane. I absolutely hear you. I'm stuck working on responsible research and innovation these days, and it's only because of the European Commission. Um, Wilfried? I don't have anything unpublishable in my drawers. Um, But do you have a future project that you want to work more on in the future? Oh, yes, there are many projects, uh, perhaps too many projects. Okay. Um, What is closest to your heart? That's a very difficult question, depending on which area of my heart you're looking. <laughs> so, uh, I would like to understand Dedekind better and the philosophical background. Right. That is a peculiarity, right? Because I mean, what I what I did discover is that there is at least one philosopher in Göttingen who I take to have had a very strong influence on Dedekind. Uh, in a general way, but also on other uh, logicians, Freire, for example, it's Hermann Lotze. Mm. He wrote a wonderful book on logic, and also in beautiful German. Uh, but he is also very influential in the evolution of phenomenology. Husserl was influenced by ah, right. So, I mean, what I said earlier, yeah, phenomenology <laughs> has not Im no impact on, on, on my work whatsoever, but I'm coming back to, 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 to trying to understand the intellectual atmosphere in the late 19th century, second half of the 19th century. So that is one project that is fairly close to my heart. And then I would like to continue concrete proof theoretic work in connection with automated theorem proving and discover heuristics, basic leading ideas for doing parts of mathematics automatically. Mm -hmm. And that's what I take to be, to, be, to be an interesting job, to find concise, intelligible ideas of a part of mathematics that allow you to do proofs in this part, uh, in a systematic way. Right. So, great one to pursue. Thanks. Rosario? So the question was, good idea Which have not been published yet? Or yeah, we ended up with two sort of parallel discussions here. Now, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. There is a, now I'm going to confess, there is a paper on peace and cybersphere. Peace and cybersphere? Which yeah. one on this day I'm going to write and publish? Mm. And uh, actually, I'm going to write it and get it rejected. And then, <laughs> you know, circulate it at some point. But that's, that's one of those things that, that is in the back of my mind. Oh. But If I'm the referee, I could do a conditional accept uh -huh. where I would be the person allowed to attack it. We can have like war in the real in the real world. This okay. is the war that talks about cyber okay. yeah. Might become self yeah. yeah, okay. It's a new experience. Uh, no, but apart from that, um, I have two artists which are becoming more and more uh, relevant in my research. One is related to um, ethics and political philosophy, so understanding the role of political authorities in this context and how they should be shaped. Uh, in contemporary reality. And then there is something new which I'm getting closer and closer, and that's uh, ethics of heuristics, mm. uh, which is not very well like known perhaps in this community. And it's, it, I got into it uh, in relation to big data, but it's very fascinating. And I always had a passion, passion for epistemology and heuristics in some sense. So 
that should be like the DTRs in which uh, you wouldn't be surprised. The next talk for the next three years will be around these two topics. Right. And if you were to follow Selmer's advice, you would use formal methods for that. I doesn't know, but there's going to be a paper in his mailing box as soon as he lands. Okay, Selmer, you have the Well, there were four basic things I wanted to do in my, my career. Um, you know, I'm very, I'm very uh, shallow and, and mechanical and programmatic. So the, the first thing was I wanted to have a really cute result in analytic philosophy of ethics. Uh, but and nobody and I did that. And nobody cares about it. Uh, <laughs> but that's in defense of copying. So that's appropriating the the paradox of the salty hamburger to uh, attempt to show that copying and duplicating even things that are highly valuable commercially is perfectly okay ethically. Uh, the second is a new proof for God's existence, which which I've I've, I've been heavily influenced by by Gills. Uh, I mean I I've, I've spent inordinate. And, and many people have, but, but Zalta's um, most recent version of the Anselmian argument that he has formalized and a very recent excellent uh, formalization of Goodall's argument, both of they, they, they really entrance me. And I have a new proof for God's existence. Uh, and uh, so, so I'm going to, at some point, finish that up and publish it. Um, then thirdly, I've already mentioned the uh, connection to biology so I, I, I think many people got into AI at my age for reasons that they no longer confess. And that is that Doug Lennett uh, of psych fame, okay, yes, he wanted to build this knowledge base that would answer every common sense human question and the rest is history or it may be bad history. But actually, Doug inaugurated machine discovery in modern AI. And I always, that was the, I always, and that's why I have so much interest in the, you know, I have interest in what Wilford's doing in the mathematical case, but I wanted to do that for something practical. Right. I wanted to, I wanted to be able to tell my mother or say, you know, I was part of, of the engineering of this system, which discovered this, which helped those people. And uh, AI's been really bad at that, and so I still want to do that. Yeah. And I, I want to f see if, with much help from other people, that could happen. And then the fourth thing is 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 is, is kind of uh, so stupid that I'm not going to mention it. But, <laughs> <laughs> really, it's, it's stupid. So yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try deeper, but I'm not going to. Uh, well, this has just convinced me that I need to sit down for at least an hour with each of you. But I'm very happy that we at least got a glimpse into each of your. Uh, personalities and your backgrounds and I'm very happy with this uh, thank you all for contributing uh, thanks to the audience for staying quiet and for contributing uh, and that's it thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, there you have it. I actually got many positive comments from the live audience afterwards, so I think this is something that I'm going to try again. Next up on Such That Cast, though, is an episode that I've been teasing for a while. It's John Cunningham, and that will be online soon. I said in the beginning that I won't beat myself up over the schedule, but I probably will, so I'm going to try to put that up within a month. Uh, I did the interview quite some time ago now, so it's really about time to release it, especially because it's one of the interviews I'm most happy with so far. Anyway, thanks for listening, and whenever it will be, I hope you'll be back for the next episode of Such That Cast. Cast.